0: You're listening to The Science of Storytelling, presented by Pressboard, a show about marketing, media, and the people making it happen. Your host is Jared Grimm. On today's Science of Storytelling episode, I'm chatting with Jeremy Elias, the head of Rethink at The Atlantic. We're going to discuss the similarities between stand-up comedy, screenwriting, and content marketing, and explore his big dream of being a California raisin. If you like this episode, please leave us a comment. We read every single one and let us know what you think. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher and Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. Please enjoy the show. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So you are the head of Rethink at The Atlantic. So can you tell me... What is Rethink?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, so, Rethink is the creative studio within the Atlantic. So, the idea being that, well, around seven years ago, when I think every single publication in America certainly was setting up what they called native content studios inside the Atlantic, what we, or rather inside publications, what we saw was branded content then or native advertising then was largely predicated on this notion of deceit. Right? It was, let's make content for brands look like the content that lives on the editorial side of our site, and we'll dupe folks into thinking that they're clicking through to some article about you know, quality air, and lo and behold, it's a story about Dyson air purifiers. Um, and largely people were thinking about native advertising and branded content as an aesthetic. So BuzzFeed had you know, a listicle of 12 Basset Hounds running wild. Why don't we do the same thing for Purina? Facebook had their own native products. The list goes on. The Atlantic took the approach of let's set up a creative studio that produces work for brands instead of thinking about what we create as matching the aesthetic of the Atlantic Let's just try and match that classic Atlantic perspective, that sensibility. What we produce for brands might not look anything like our editorial work, um, but what it will have is that classic Atlantic brand of storytelling. So taking the unconventional approach to a topic, really questioning people's preconceived notions on any particular topic, trying to think of inventive ways to tell a story beyond just traditional prose or talking head videos. Uh, and that's basically just led to this evolution over the last six years within the Atlantic of us building out the team and us just trying
0: to produce more and more ambitious work. Interesting, so using the process that the Atlantic uses and. In- the style and the approach, but not necessarily mimicking editorial. Exactly. Okay, that's interesting. Exactly. Uh, you touch on something that I that's close to, to my heart, because I, I entered into branded content mainly because I didn't like banner ads. I was in, I always wanted to be in marketing. I wanted Angela Bauer's job off Who's the Boss, which is really dating myself. Like now I'm very familiar with kid. who's the
1: boss, Tony Danza.
0: Tony Danza, yeah. Alyssa Milano, they all got their start there. So I wanted to be Judith Light, which is a really interesting thing for a 13 year old boy to want to be the head of an advertising agency. But that's what I wanted to do when I was a kid. I fell in love with marketing. And then as I got into digital marketing, the issue I found was that we were all focused on these banner ads. And I imagine you're a creative person trying to design a 300 by 250 pixel doesn't really give you the canvas that you're looking for. And so I fell in love with branded content, but I agree with you, especially when it started out, it felt more like paid PR. Like I couldn't get my story covered editorially, but here's this other route in. Uh, do you think that that's still exists? Or do you think
1: that that's completely changed? No, I think it it still exists in many forms. I think if I'm being completely honest, I think the Atlantic oftentimes is guilty of doing things of that nature. I mean, it's the classic, take my press release and turn it into an 800 word piece that lives on the Atlantic. And I think our success is dependent on limiting those instances. Now, why can't we just sort of totally eradicate them right now? I think there's still advertisers, both on the brand side, on the media agency side, that that's what they know, that's what they feel safe doing. It's a sort of linear approach of the more I mention my brand or the more I talk about myself or the more I get that perfectly approved copy from the seven different layers of approval on the brand side and agency side and PR side and comm side and sides go on and on. Um, le- that's probably best, right? Let's just hit the nail over the head. I think to your point about Atlantic Rethink mimicking the Atlantic's editorial process versus mimicking their look and feel and trying to do people into it, I always like to say that in an ideal world, the work that we produce not only borrows from the sort of journalistic rigor of the Atlantic, telling just a really good story that's different, but it also sort of mimics the journalistic value of the Atlantic So ideally, if you're watching, if you're reading something that my team produces, if you run into it out in the wild because it's some experiential thing, you can derive some form of value from it beyond just learning about the brand. And that value can be entertainment. We might actually teach you something. Um, We might motivate you to do something. We might inspire you. If we can articulate what that
0: is, I think we've done our job. And so... When you're trying to get that across and you're trying to use this journalistic integrity and you wanna create a great piece that lives beyond uh, just, you know, advertising folks liking it and maybe the real world likes it as well, do you, how do you approach that with an advertiser or an ad agency that like you said, has seven layers of approval, needs the brand mentioned 3.5 times in the first 200 words if it's an article, how, and they're also the one funding this. So how do you how do you approach that and how do you get to the place where the content is great, the work is great and everyone's happy at the end?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say I'd break it down into three different categories. One is the Alternative idea or approach you're pitching them just has to be good. Now I think everybody thinks creativity and quality and a good story is subjective. Yes, there's subjectivity. There's also a lot of objectivity, right? Like if you ask a thousand film critics what their favorite movies are, you're going to see the same things popping up again of Gone with the Wind and Casablanca and Godfather, and the list goes on. Because to some degree, people collectively can recognize good work. So first and foremost, the the alternative idea you're showing them just has to be good. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the approach has to be proven. So obviously, any sort of case studies or success metrics that you can show them from previous campaigns that done, you've done helps. But the third thing, which I think oftentimes goes unnoticed and people don't do enough of is articulating in a sincere and, and real way to the client that you are advocating for this approach because you truly believe it's in their best interest. And sometimes, and the reason why I think a lot of clients are justified in their skepticism when they want to take their approach versus a creative's approach is, I do think creatives oftentimes come to the table in a disingenuous manner where they just want to do an idea because it's fun, because it's cool, because... You know, It's what they want to add to their portfolio, but they can't justifiably say it's going to move the needle on this person's business, and they can't say that it ties back to the brief for the brand. So I think if you avoid those instances and you find the middle ground of it's just great creative work that answers what they're trying to do, and you articulate to them, this is why I believe it's right for your business, oftentimes you see them sort of you, – you get their buy-in.
0: Yeah. It's like a selfless approach to it because – Everyone that has creative work, I mean, there is, you do want it to win awards and be accredited in some way and, and have that proof point. But sometimes what you need to do is sell more widgets for company X because that's what they're trying to do. And maybe there's a very creative way to get that across that isn't, you know, a hit over the head type of ad. Right. Uh, I want to jump back a little bit because I always think it's interesting this branded content space because there's no, there's no schooling that is specific to I'm going to be the head of a branded content studio. There's not that many career days where a kid is like, I'm going to either be a veterinarian or the head of branded content at The Atlantic. So let's talk about your path to this role. Sure. So what was it? What were your big dreams when you were growing up and what you wanted to do for a career? Um, a lot of
1: dreams. So I think probably around the age where you wanted to be Judith Light from Who's the Boss, I wanted to be a, a California raisin this was disturbing to my family. I wanted to specifically be one of the California raisins that I had seen in the commercials. It didn't occur to me what that transition to becoming a raisin would be, but that was like very much something (laughs) I was telling my parents. Um, and it's probably why I, you know, they sent me to different professionals to see what the hell was wrong with me. But then when I realized that that wouldn't be a feasible sort of aspiration. It's hard to be a raisin. It's, it's hard, hard to, be, to be a raisin. And
0: an animated, were they animated at that they time? They were animated
1: yeah. at that time. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's like in a cruel world. It's tough being a raisin. It's, it's, tough, it's tough being a, being a raisin. raisin. Um, but like any sort of class clown from North Jersey, I wanted to be a stand up comedian. Um, No one had told me that you had to be funny to be a stand-up comedian. I learned the hard way, but I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. And, you know, I'd go to the various open mics and I did it in college. And ultimately, you know, realizing the pain and angst and the struggle of being a stand-up comedian, and I probably couldn't have stomached that life, um, I thought I'll be a screenwriter.
0: Hmm.
1: Loved movies, I loved writing, i will be a screenwriter. I wrote a couple screenplays that really went nowhere. and. What I realized was is my favorite part about writing, about screenwriting, about sort of penning together some brief little stand-up bit for open mic was I, one, loved just exerting that creative muscle, and I liked making things, right? Like like physical, tangible things. I'm not good with tools. I'm not a good carpenter, so I can't be making stools and ottomans and tables, but I can make things, uh, you know, like a video project, write my screenplay, um, report and write a profile piece for the student paper and then other publications once I graduated. So how could I do this, make things in a creative field while also paying the rent? I graduated in the worst economic crisis this country's seen in the last 50 years. Uh, It was really hard to get a job. I was looking around, I had been on an interview, I came home, I was living in my mom's apartment in North Jersey. Uh, At that point, I was still toying around with being a screenwriter, still toying around with being a stand-up comic, not a dollar to my name. I walked in, my mom was there in North Jersey, and she asked me for, I would say, 20 minutes, a real interrogation as to why I didn't take the leftover Chinese food for lunch. So now I'm stuck in this just, like, insane conversation having to explain myself as to why I don't like leftover low main. I don't think it holds so well. And it hit me of, like, I need to get the hell out of here quick. I love my mother, very close with my mother, but living in the same three-bedroom apartment was too close quarters. Yeah, this isn't going to work long term. Exactly. Exactly. First job I got was at a media agency called Horizon Media, which you probably know. Uh, A gentleman by the name of Taylor Valentine was starting a a group, and I forgot exactly what it was called, but broadly speaking, it was like an emerging media group. And it was this small three-person team inside a media agency that was essentially trying to just sell through any sort of scrappy creative work they could. So we did things like early days of podcast production. We did some podcast production for what later became NBC Sports, then it was the Versus Network. We did blogger outreach. We tried to get bloggers to write about our clients' products. Like the original influencer campaigns. Exactly. We did a uh, small-scale video production, but we were three people. We were inside a media organization. Taylor since went on to grow that team to some astronomical number, and, and now I think he's the chief invention officer there or something. Um, but that was my first sort of foray into what could kind of be called the creative side of advertising. And then I realized in order to sort of – up the ambition in what we were developing, I would have to go to a more traditional creative agency. And I went to a place called 360i. And there I was a copywriter for brand social channels. So everything from writing tweets, Facebook updates, and posts for Ben and Jerry's Hanes Underwear, Ugg Australia, Oscar Mayer, uh, the list goes on.
0: It's interesting. So is there a thread between being a stand-up comedian, a screenwriter, Doing copywriting, I mean, to me, there's a very obvious, you have this ability to take an idea, put it to pen and paper, and be able to write this narrative around it. Is that what you find is, is the thread that ties this all together? Because they're fairly disparate career choices.
1: No, I think that's a, it's a great point. I mean you cannot afford in screenwriting in stand-up comedy oftentimes with the intention spans of readers today in your articles you cannot afford to articulate your idea in you know this endless sort of amorphous style that just goes on and on it's all about i have an idea how do i articulate it conveyed in not only a way that's compelling in comedy's case funny in as short and concise a way as possible with just the right words and syntax that it lands. Uh, and that is not only true in the final product of advertising, whether you're developing copy for Facebook or Instagram or you're developing a 30-second spot or 60-second spot, but everything that leads up to that production. So if you're in a room with a client and you're pitching them on your crazy idea, if you're trying to get buy-in from the account team or, in my instance, the sales team, I mean, that skill set is one that I feel like I'm constantly practicing and trying to hone because I think it's very much dependent on, on my success and the team's success.
0: Yeah, there's also, you know, there's a large exposure to rejection in all of these career choices. Like a stand-up comedian, you're putting something out there and you're very likely to receive rejection from it. You're screenwriting, that's a, you know, you're putting your whole heart into a script and then you're putting it out there and that could get rejected. Then you move into any creative endeavor. So how do you feel about that when you're doing stand-up and you did some open mics did you crush it every time? Or was there times where you went up there and you you know, wrote this great joke, you thought it was going to be amazing, and then it just bombed? Yeah, I mean, of course. It's natural.
1: In my case, there was a lot of bombing, like right. a whole lot of bombing. And I think. Ultimately, talk to any stand-up comedian, they talk about this you know, seven years that it took them to perfect their act, that it took them to really get good at their craft, and in that seven years, there is just an infinite amount of rejection, and there's also those sort of sparks of, oh, my God, that was the best set of my life, and that intoxicating feeling of everybody laughing at something that you said or you wrote and or you performed. Um, I don't deal that well with rejection. I obviously take it pretty hard and personally, uh, which is probably one of the reasons why I couldn't stomach the life of becoming a a stand-up comedian. And obviously, like I said, there was certainly a lack of talent there as well. Um, but yeah, and I think there's a lot of rejection in, in the advertising business. I mean, you talk to any creative or strategist or account person, some of their best ideas are the ones that just never got made. Um. And you look at us in terms of pitching something, and you're only really selling something through some 30, 40% of the time, that's a a lot of work and labor and uh, rejection to be facing. But at the end of the day, you know, it's not a woe is me scenario or woe is the team scenario. Um, I feel like. It's incredibly—anybody who is in a field where they get to make stuff, where they get to work with really smart people, where they have a job that pays the rent, I mean, we feel quite fortunate. So as tough as that rejection is and as hard as it is to not take it personally, at the end of the day, in the grand scheme of things, like we are very lucky individuals to be doing what it is we're doing. And a lot less arguing over
0: day-old Chinese food. Exactly. We'll be back to the episode in just a few seconds, but first, we have some exciting news for you. At Pressboard, we love stories, but we know how hard it can be to measure them. So we're here to help, whether it's a sponsored article on a news site, an Instagram post from an influencer, or a video on YouTube, our tech measures it all. Pressboard is already trusted by Spotify, Intel, NBC Universal, Hearst, and thousands more. And here's the big news listeners of the podcast can try out the Pressboard platform for free. Just email info at pressboardmedia.com right now. All right, let's get back to the show. Uh, well, let's talk about one of those times where your creative idea or the team's creative idea came to fruition. You were able to get it out there into the world. I'd like to talk about a campaign that you did for HBO's Watchmen. Yeah. Uh, could you give us give us some context to tell us about that campaign?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, so HBO Watchmen, for anybody that's seen the series, is unbelievable. Um You know, it's obviously originated with a comic book series, but this new take on HBO uh, essentially borrows the very real-life story of the 1921 Tulsa Massacre, where largely black community was just absolutely decimated at the hands of Klansmen and bigots, and it's really one of those horrific events in American history that not many people know about. Uh, the director of the Watchmen series used that real-life sort of uh, event as the backdrop for the series. And I always think it's interesting in entertainment that borrows, especially fictional entertainment that borrows from real-life instances like that to really go deep on those real-life stories and narratives that inspired uh The events itself. I mean, I could see us doing something like this again for HBO coming out with Plot Against America, the great Philip Roth novel. Um, So I think we knew from a strategic perspective, given how the Atlantic has covered issues like this in the past, given the level of credibility that we have covering issues that pertain to just the injustices that have been done to African American communities. And knowing that one of our former uh, writers, ta Coates, helped inspire uh, the way in which the director shot and, and built out some of the scenes within The Watchmen, we knew our angle could be, let's really go deep on the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. There's a lot of ways to, quote unquote, go deep on the 1921 Tulsa Massacre. Ours was, instead of doing this long-winded 3,000-word piece going deep on it that you could basically get in a Wikipedia page, what if we borrowed from the style of the Watchmen comic book, and actually built out a graphic novella of sorts that went deep on what happened that day in 1921 in Tulsa. That's a scary pitch. You're talking about one of the most horrific events in American history, and you're gonna depict it in, frankly, a cartoon? That's a bit scary. We made the pitch to the client in two ways. We made the pitch, first and foremost, that The Atlantic has the credibility to talk about this topic. We made the pitch that there have been things that have been written about the 1921 Tulsa massacre. To differentiate this story, we should do something a bit bolder in execution. And then three, we basically made the pitch of this is something that has sort of been done before. And I mean, you look at Art Spiegelman's Mouse, which is a graphic novel talking about his father's experiences in concentration camps and in the Holocaust, one Potentially a Pulitzer, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, But using this medium and using this execution to talk about really consequential topics is something that has been done with success and before it's not unprecedented. So that became the pitch. And then once they ultimately, you know, we got their buy in, we had to make it. Uh, And then it becomes a true exercise in putting together a team that can really dig deep in the research, that can really talk to really, really established sources, folks from academia, folks who have written on this topic before, um, finding individuals within our walls that can write copy that fits the comic book-like execution, but then also finding our artists, and we found an incredible artist, a guy who both worked for DC Comics as well as Marvel Comics. It's not something we tried to do in-house, knowing the sort of sensitivity of the topic and knowing it had to be executed flawlessly. So brought him on as a freelancer. And then that basically led to us developing what just turned out to be, honestly, in 2019, one of our most successful
0: pieces. It's amazing. Now, so you build out this, you know, uh, Graphic novella mm-hmm. uh, which explains so I, I saw it as well. And what I what I liked about it was that it was and and maybe this isn't, you know, a great thing about myself, but I found it easy to consume. Yeah. Right. So maybe it would be a little bit daunting for me to go through, you know, a five thousand word, you know, deep think piece when I'm on the plane. But this was something that I could consume relatively quickly, mm-hmm. get a pretty good understanding of a topic and an event that I didn't know. I'm Canadian. I didn't know that much about it. We didn't learn about it in like our schooling. Um, and from what I understand, based on the campaign, actually, it hasn't been that talked about in America as well. It's, it's one of those events that swept under the rug a bit. Uh, so you you build that out. There's a lot of requirement for accuracy when you're depicting something that happened in real life, but it happened a long time ago, and I'm sure there's conflicting reports on what happened, et cetera. Uh, Is this a place where the Atlantic's process comes into play?
1: Yeah, I think it cannot go unrecognized and unsaid. The level of fact-checking, of internal discourse and deliberation over certain choices we're making on things, on the sources that we get, I mean, In the entertainment space in 2019 as well, we did something around Ava DuVernay's series When They See Us, which is a a scripted series on the real life incident of the Central Park Five. I mean, for that story, you're talking about us getting access and uh, talking to folks like Jelani Cobb from The New Yorker, a staff writer at The New Yorker, Rembert Brown, sitting down with the actual Central Park Five and hearing their story, making sure that we're not only getting new information, but accurate information and we're doing everything that takes into account the sensitivity of this topic. Um, And that was very much the case with HBO Watchmen. We spoke to the woman who wrote the definitive book on the Tulsa massacre. Um, we spoke to various professors. Um, it was important for us to put together a diverse team, not just have you know a room of white men covering this topic given this specific subject matter, um, and then also bringing on a fact checker to go through everything, making sure that we're citing the right archives, making sure we spoke to the right people. And then gets into the real nitty-gritty, which is... And this, I think, was very necessary, sitting down with the clients and we're depicting actual people and their reaction to their community being burnt down. What are their facial expressions like? Does that person feel, you know, justifiably angry? Does that, you know, headline that we put in that newspaper actually reflect the look, mm-hmm. feel, and copy of the newspaper that ran in 1921 in Tulsa? So it was
0: uh, arduous but necessary production and exercise. And then, how do you, what does success look like with a campaign like that? You do all this work, you put all this fact checking, you produce a a beautiful piece that everyone's proud of. And then, how do you know if that did well afterwards? I have a very easy metric for
1: success, which is has anybody talked about this thing and passed this thing along that's not in the advertising (laughs) industry? It's like very simple. Right. Um, And I think to be in my Twitter feed, to be in my LinkedIn feed, uh, to see, you know, the Onion AV Club pick this up and BuzzFeed pick this up without any sort of PR blitz, to me, was like the greatest metric of success. Some random guy on Twitter saying, you know, it's Black History Month, this is required reading for everybody. Like, oh my god, yes. I mean, that's two months after the campaign ended. So that's like the baseline metric of success. If you want to get into the nitty gritty numbers, it's one of those great instances where, you know, all performance metrics were predominantly organic and earned versus through paid media. So I know that can be a bit jargony, but basically, more people just found it through pass-along, through press pickup, through seeing it in their feeds, then found it with us paying to drive them to that
0: destination. And that's just, again, another huge metric of success for us. Yeah, because a lot of content, branded content especially, you're having to pay to distribute it to get it in front of people. Essentially, you have to advertise that creative piece to enough people so that they're going to consume it. Uh, I wonder if if part of this is coming from you didn't grow up wanting judith light's job right so you came from a place of i want to appeal to larger audiences and to just regular folks it doesn't sound like you necessarily sat down and said i want to get into advertising Uh, but you ended up in this space and that's an interesting frame of mind to come into it as to to see success as hey this should be just super interesting and people should want to pass it to their friends and whether it was funded by an advertiser or not is almost irrelevant to the eventual success now there's a lot of talk about scale in branded content how it doesn't exist so it's usually seen as a negative because in advertising and marketing everyone's trying to create these products that can grow really quickly, can be sold very quickly, and can be repeated over and over and over again without requiring too many humans involved, without it getting too messy. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's a leading
1: question because you probably know my thoughts on it, which is can that— feel it. <laughs> The facial expressions I was making as you were talking and uttering the word scale. I mean, I don't want to be in this business if the answer is, how does it scale? I don't want, quote-unquote, scalable ideas— It runs, in a sense, uh, antithetical to the type of creative work that I hope the team gets to produce at The Atlantic and I hope to produce throughout my career, which is big, time-consuming, ambitious, scary ideas that cannot scale in many regards. I mean, we have a shoot in Northern California in three weeks. It is endless amounts of hours of preparation it is a huge logistical feat it is unbelievable amount of coordination we're going through storyboards we're making sure everything hits it is taking up a huge amount of a lot of people's time it is a big production it's going to be exciting the work is going to be great it's not something that will quote unquote scale i'm not looking for creative that can scale if i wanted to scale or if i was you know looking for scale i'd you know work in a factory making brake pads and see if we can make X amount per hour. I mean, that's just not something I want to do. Now, is there a real need for the work that we do to make money for The Atlantic as an organization to keep the lights on, to fund our journalism, to just grow as a business? Yes, so I'm always looking for ways to, like, find efficiencies and and make us a sort of, like, tightly run organization. But in terms of, you know, quote-unquote, will it scale it's it's not a question that i i typically ask myself or want to answer
0: and i think we need that viewpoint because i mean i do think of scale a lot we're a tech company so we're looking at how could you repeat over and over with little incremental effort but i think we need both in this industry we need this idea that let's go after big ambitious ideas take the funding from an advertiser Mm -hmm. and create great work. The one thing I've always found super interesting with branded content is this idea that sometimes you can get a bigger budget around a creative idea on a branded content side than you could on the editorial side. Like you could get hundreds of thousand dollars to back, you know, a simple execution with a really creative idea. Whereas maybe the editorial team would never be able to, they dream of having that as long as you can balance, the needs of that advertiser that is funding it with the outcome at the end. So no, I, I think keep aiming for that lack of scale. Yeah, and we have my boss, the CRO of
1: The Atlantic always keeps me in check and finding some of those more uh, efficient, scalable, creative executions. But I feel like I need to take this stance I take in order to keep
0: it an even playing field for the, us creatives. Definitely. Well, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. I do hope that one day you get that dream of being a California raisin. And I hope, you get, I hope you get your dream of being Judith Leith in uh, Who's the Boss? Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you're going to be producing over the next years to come at Rethink. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you so much for tuning into The Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single one. See you next time.